Good evening. It's good to see you tonight. Thank you for being here. Appreciate so much your presence. If you're visiting, we want you to know how much we want you to come back. Always grateful to have visitors with us. And thank you for each of you coming back tonight. I've said it before, and I just want to say it again. I know that there are a lot of places that you could choose to be tonight, and I'm very grateful that you chose to be here. And I think that one of the beautiful things about being a Christian is that we can spend time together, enjoy a period of fellowship, study together, worship together, grow closer together and grow closer to the Lord. And ultimately, uh, our goal is to get to heaven. And so, very thankful for the opportunity afforded us. I do want to just very quickly make mention of what Zach said a minute ago. What he said is true. Uh, uh, you know, sometimes you have to have somebody pull you to the side and maybe give you some insight. And so Nancy had said to me, she said, you know, you might want to slow down a little bit. And I have a tendency sometimes to, like a roller coaster, just blow through stuff. It's not intentional, it just happens. And so what I want to ask you to do for me is when we discuss the Holy Spirit on Sunday morning and Wednesday night, if I'm going too fast, please raise your hand and tell me to slow down. Or if you don't understand something, then ask me to go back over it. One of the greatest ways to teach is repetition. And one of the things I thought about this afternoon, matter of fact, I had a text from a sister out in New Mexico that watches our services, streams online with us on many occasions. And she said something about how she was grateful that it had been suggested to me to slow down. And so, uh, you know, sometimes you need to hear it from multiple sources. But nonetheless, one of the things I thought about was I want to try to summarize what we talk about. And that, I think, will help. And then the notes, hopefully, that will help as well. And uh, look, this is a complex subject. And our brethren have studied this subject for years and years and years. It's not something that you're going to grasp overnight. It is really a lifetime of study. And so I want to encourage you I don't think we ought to be frightened by a study of the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, I think it's a biblical concept and we ought to study it. But it's not something that's easy to teach. It's not something that's easy to comprehend in some ways. And so sometimes I have a problem of assuming knowledge and I don't need to do that. So anyway, uh, I'll take my lumps and uh, try to slow down and we'll try to summarize uh, the things that we're talking about. Let's look tonight at 1 Kings chapter 12. Jared, Jared last week talked about Jeroboam. And of course, in this context, we have the sad details of the division that took place in the kingdom. You remember going all the way back to 1 Samuel 8 when the children of Israel asked God for a king. And God, of course, recognized their request, honored that request. And uh, it was the prophet who said in the long ago, I gave him a king in my anger, took him away in my wrath. God consented to the children of Israel and gave them a king. And I want to go back and look in a minute at 1 Samuel chapter 8 because I think there is some information contained there that helps us to better understand the problems that we read about in 1 Kings chapter 12, particularly in light of the request that's made of Rehoboam and the foolish decision that he reached. And so let's just look at, let, let's go back for a minute or two and look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. And I want to maybe set the stage for what we're talking about. 
Saul was the first king over the nation of Israel. Saul, as you well know, rejected the counsel of God. He was instructed to go and to utterly destroy the Amalekites. He failed to do that, and so God removed him as king. And this thing greatly troubled Samuel, the prophet of God. And so Saul was removed, and David took the throne. David would serve as king over the United Kingdom. And then following the death of David, Solomon came to the throne. Solomon was a man renowned for wisdom. And sadly, in many ways, he ignored the wisdom that God gave him. And as a result of that, catastrophic consequences. So go back with me, if you would, and look at 1 Samuel in chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. You remember the context. The text tells us that the elders of Israel approached Samuel. In verse 5, they said, Look, you're old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, make us a king to judge as like all the nations. Now, verse 6 tells us that this thing displeased Samuel. He prayed to God. And God said, in effect, they've not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me as king. And you remember in Judges 21-25, the record closes that period of Judges. Some 350-year period closes with the record reading, in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so now they've requested a king. And so drop down and note, if you would, the behavior of the king as outlined by God. In verse 10, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. Some will run before his chariots. He'll appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. We'll set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, bakers. He'll take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. He'll take your men servants and your maidservants and your finest young men, your donkeys, and put them to his work. He'll take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants." The bottom line is, they wanted a king, and God said, all right, you want a king, here is how the king is going to treat you. So in 1 Kings chapter 12, we have an account of Jeroboam and those that represented what we would call the northern tribe, approaching Rehoboam. And they want Rehoboam to lighten the load. You think about the tributes and the taxes and all the things that had been imposed upon the nation. And by the way, the kingdom, that is the kingdom we're talking about, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, was never intended to benefit the personal welfare of the one occupying the throne. But rather, the king was to have been a servant to the people. And so with that in mind, look if you would at 1 Kings chapter 12 again. So they approach Rehoboam. Rehoboam is establishing his, his throne. And so the Bible says in verse 4, 
Here's what they acknowledged. Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us and we will serve you. Now the text says that Jeroboam, or rather Rehoboam, told them, give me three days and I'll give you an answer. You know, sometimes it's wise to carefully and prayerfully consider major decisions in life. So as we look at this context, first and foremost, I want you to see there was a foolish decision. And you say, well, why was that? Well, Rehoboam, like many of us, when we face maybe important decisions in life, it might be that we seek out a counselor. And we want to sit down and talk to maybe one individual or maybe more than one, set before that person the conditions and circumstances, and say, what do you think about it? What would you advise? So that's what the text tells us was done. Now, note if you would, in verse 6, King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived. And he said, how do you advise me to answer these people? Now look at verse 7. I think verse 7 is a key to the whole chapter. Had Rehoboam accepted the advice of the elders, things would have been well. But he rejected the wisdom of these older men. And here's what they said. If you'll be a servant to these people today, and serve them. Note, it's not just about people serving you, but rather it's about you serving them, serving the Lord. And answer them and speak good words to them. Then they will be your servants forever. Now look at verse 8. But he rejected the counsel which the elders gave him, and consulted the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. So, Jeroboam and his envoy, they want Rehoboam to lighten the load. The elders give him wise counsel. You know, sometimes it may be the case that we're looking for what we would call a yes man. We want somebody to tell us what we want to hear so that we can do what we want to do. So, Rehoboam, he consults with his peers, the younger men. Nothing wrong with being young. But there's a lot to be said about experience in life. You know, we live in a country today that in many ways, sadly, fails to understand the wisdom of growing older in life. Nothing wrong with youth. As a matter of fact, we've all been young. Some are young today. But there are things that you learn in life that you do not learn in a classroom called the school of hard knocks, isn't it? Sometimes life is a good teacher, isn't it? And so the younger men, they basically tell Rehoboam, you go back and tell them. If you thought my father was something, if you thought he made it tough on you, you wait till I get in power and see what I do to you. Well, how'd that work out? Not so well. So one of the things I want to stress, I believe in the church today, we need to respect and recognize the wisdom of our elders or more mature members. You think about how much wisdom sits in this assembly tonight. Brother Billy teaches a class every Tuesday. 
Every Sunday, once a month, they have a worship service at Silver Creek. I filled in for Billy a few times when he was sick. And I remember sitting in that room with maybe 12 to 15 people and thinking about the collective wisdom in that one room. Hundreds of years of wisdom that had been accumulated over a lifetime. You know, sadly, sometimes in the church, as you get older in life as a preacher, folks don't want you as much. I've, I know a brother right now that's a little bit older in years. And one of the things that he has found out, there are a lot of congregations that are looking for preachers, but they want a young man. They want a young man with children. Well, I don't know necessarily how that makes you a more effective preacher. I understand maybe the importance of giving people an opportunity. But as we grow older, in, don't you think as, as you grow older in life, don't you think you have more to offer than you've ever had in days gone by? As a Bible class teacher, don't you think you know more today than you did 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago? So there's something to be said for wisdom that comes about through life. Now, as a result of his foolish decision, and here's what I think maybe we ought to keep in mind. For every action, there's a corresponding reaction. Sometimes the decisions that we make do not necessarily impact our personal lives. That is, they don't necessarily impact us and us alone. Sometimes the decisions we make create waves among many, many people. So the decision that Rehoboam makes doesn't just affect him and his cohorts, but rather it affects the nation as a whole, doesn't it? So what happens? Well, the text tells us, Jared pointed out last week, Jeroboam split off, and Jeroboam did not have to take the route that he did. God gave him very simple, explicit instructions on how to enjoy a prosperous reign. For example, look back in chapter 11. In chapter 11, here's what God said to Jeroboam. In verse 38, well, look at verse 37. He said, I'll take you and you shall reign over all your heart desires. You shall be king over Israel. And it shall be, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you, build for you an enduring house as I built for David, and will give Israel to you. That's wisdom right there. God's saying, look, if you will honor my word, do what I say, I'll bless you. And yet Jeroboam became an innovator. Set up golden calves, one in Dan, the other in Bethel. And you know the rest of the story. But the division that occurred, the fact that here is the nation of Israel, the king, kingdom to the north, and the southern kingdom, there's a breach there. The northern kingdom will then go into Assyrian captivity in about 722, 721 B.C. They didn't have to go into captivity, but they did so because they ignored the teaching of Almighty God. And Jeroboam was a terrible leader. And not only was he a bad leader, but Rehoboam was a bad leader as well. 
And so for years what you see, the kingdom of Judah and the king of Isra kingdom of Israel running side by side until the northern kingdom goes into captivity. And then a little over 100 years later, guess what? The southern kingdom goes into Babylonian captivity. Now God had made a promise that through the tribe of Judah, the Christ would emerge. Well, that promise wasn't made to the northern kingdom, the northern tribes. But it was made to the kingdom of Judah. And so that seed line would ultimately run through David's household. Now, what about the breach? You know, division is a terrible thing, isn't it? One brother pointed out, division doesn't necessarily happen overnight. And I think he's right. Think about how many homes in our country tonight are divided. Many homes today no longer intact because of divorce. I don't think divorce occurs overnight. I don't think somebody wakes up on Sunday morning, Monday morning, Tuesday morning, and all of a sudden says, you know what, I think I need to get a divorce from my wife or my husband. I don't think that happens. But there are seeds that are sown over time that will lead to a breach in that relationship. Now, here's what Jesus said. A house divided against itself cannot stand. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Did the kingdom split? Yes, it did. Look at the church of Christ tonight and ask yourself, our brotherhood is a mighty brotherhood, but we, are, we all, are we all on the same page, spiritually speaking? You know, at the turn of the century, back in the early 1900s, there was a formal break between the church of Christ and the Christian church. Once division occurs, it is very difficult to bring the parties together again. And I've known of people that have been divorced and then later remarried one another. It's a great thing. But typically when people terminate a marriage, they go their separate ways. So you look at the church of Christ. There was a time when churches of Christ were the fastest growing religious entity in this nation. But something happened, didn't it? So look at, look at the church today. Listen to what the psalmist said in the long ago. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Why are we dividing or why are we divided in churches of Christ tonight? Can I tell you why? You know, there are some congregations I would grant that because of certain attitudes within the context of that congregation, there's been a breach. I know of a church today in the city of Memphis that divided almost 30 years ago. At that time, they were, one of, they were a large church. But since the time they divided, they have never amounted to anything in terms of numerical growth. Why? So look at the church tonight. We're divided in churches of Christ tonight, and I know that there has been no formal announcement of a breach, but listen, whether we like it or not, there is division. 
congregations, you've got congregations to the right and those to the left. Heard this past week of an eldership that was re-examining the role of women in the church. And I've mentioned this before. Well, you know, there's nothing to re-examine. What they were trying to say was, well, it was a cultural thing, okay? Let's see how that works out. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul said, I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Okay? Was that a cultural thing? Listen to the very next verse. Adam was first formed and then Eve. Listen, that is not a cultural obligation. Let me tell you another reason why churches of Christ are dividing. I've seen it with my own eyes. The instrument. Now look, somebody asked me tonight, why do you sing? I can give you two verses and that's all I need. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Ephesians 5, 19. The Bible says to sing, sing. So here's what I want to ask those on the other side of the aisle, those who have no problem with the instrument. Give me your scripture. Show me in the Bible where you have book, chapter, and verse for rolling an instrument in the service. Let me tell you what, you can look till Jesus comes and you won't find it. You'll never find in Scripture the authority to use an instrument in worship to God. When God said to sing, that excluded everything else. When God told Noah to build an ark of gopher wood, that excluded every other kind of wood. Now that's the fact of the matter. And so you look at churches of Christ tonight, and sadly the younger folks influenced Rehoboam. We've got gray-haired individuals in elderships in our brotherhood that quite frankly are leading the charge in apostasy in churches of Christ tonight. Do you realize that? There are congregations that I cannot be in fellowship with. And why is that? It's because they have violated the word of the living God. Now, either God's Word is authoritative, and that's really what we're talking about. Everything we're talking about has to do with the authority of Scripture. Starts with authority, it ends with authority. So, what about the authority of Jesus Christ? Let me just call attention to a passage very quickly. Look over in the book of Ephesians for a minute. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Paul deals with the importance of unity in the body of Christ. I want you to read this with me because I think it's very important. In verses 1 through 3, what Paul does is stresses attitude, the attitude that will make for unity within the body of Christ. So listen to what he says, beginning in verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, exhort you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, Bearing with one another in love. Now look at verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What are you saying, Paul? Paul's saying that if we will be humble and gentle or kind and meek and suffer along with one another, then we can avoid breaches in our fellowship. 
Here are some attitudes that will help us maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now look at verse 4. In verses 4 through 6, now you have Paul turning attention to what I would call the absolutes of unity. These are the non-negotiables. Things that we have no right to decide whether or not we'll honor. Look at verse 4. There is one body and one spirit. All right? In a day and time where we have a pluralism of religious bodies and we have some members of the body of Christ, congregations in our fellowship that are now fraternizing with denominations. In so doing, are they not complicit in the fact in saying denominationalism is okay? Well, Paul said, look, there's just one body. Well, what's the body? He's the head of the body of the church, Colossians 1.18. That is non-negotiable. We don't have a right to tamper with that. There's one Holy Spirit. And then note the continuation. One hope, even as you were called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Let's just pause there. One faith? What's the one faith? It's the gospel system, isn't it? How then can we avoid division within the body of Christ? Paul had the answer, didn't he? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He said that you all speak the same thing. Until we get on the same page, biblically speaking, we'll never speak the same thing, will we? So we've got to make sure that we're following the one faith, the gospel system. And Paul went on to say there's one God and Father of us all who is over all, above all, and through all. So, non-negotiables. Now, there's a third thing, very quickly, our time's almost gone. And I uh, hadn't gotten very far. Go back again and look at 1 Kings very quickly. In 1 Kings, I want to talk maybe a moment or two about the failure of Rehoboam in the area of his duties. Now, look at what's said in verse 21, chapter 14. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name. Now look at verse 22. Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they committed more than all their fathers. Verse 23. They also built for themselves high places. In other words, they engaged in idolatrous practices sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. And then, not only were they spiritually bankrupt, but they were morally bankrupt. He said there were also perverted persons, sodomites, in the land. They did according to all the, abomina the abominations of which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Let me give you maybe some background to what I'm talking about in terms of ignoring the duty that had been entrusted to him. Go back very quickly and look at Deuteronomy chapter 17. Had Rehoboam sought to serve the Lord, and the text talks about over in the book of Chronicles how he forsook the Lord, not only he, but also the children of Israel. But very quickly, look at Deuteronomy chapter 17. And here we have Moses writing, preemptively talking about the fact that there's going to come a day when Israel's going to want a king. And so God said, all right, when they want a king, here are the things that are going to make for a successful kingship. Verse 14, 
When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it, say, I'll set a king over me like the nations that were around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set his king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Now look at verse 16. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. All right, Rehoboam. His father was Solomon, right? Solomon violated the principles set forth by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 17. What's the old saying, like father, like son? You want to know why Rehoboam made foolish decisions and brought about division and then walked wickedly before God? Because he ignored the teaching of Almighty God. In verse 18 he said, Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from, from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall... Read it all the days of his life that he may be careful to learn the Lord, or rather to fear the Lord his God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandments to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in the kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So note, Vic, note, what Moses is saying here. You're to honor the law of God. You're to keep in your possession a copy of the law of God. And then he warns him about the danger or warns the children of Israel about the danger of pride. Having said that, turn now to 2 Chronicles very, very quickly again. I know our time is almost gone, but I want you to see something in the book of 2 Chronicles. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 12 at verse 1. And think again about what Moses recorded in Deuteronomy 17 and the danger of being lifted up with pride and note what is said. Sometimes power and success cause pride. And pride can lead to disobedience. It came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself. Now note that he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel along with him. Think of the impact that Jeroboam had on the northern kingdom. And then look at the impact, the influence of Rehoboam in the southern kingdom. Drop down and note, if you would, down in verse 13. Verse 13, the text tells us that Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem, reigned 41 years, when he, or rather he was 41 years old when he became king, reigned 17 years. In Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, which by way of implication is to say that God never honored the worship of Jeroboam and his people in Dan and Bethel. Why? Because it was not the right place. And not only that, but also because of the golden calves. Now look at verse 14. Rehoboam did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. You can go back and read the kings. In the northern kingdom, 
They were all corrupt. In the southern kingdom, you had a few to the best of their ability that sought to do what was right, Hezekiah being one, Josiah another. But retrospectively, a sad history. God preserved that southern kingdom, preserved a remnant so that the Christ, the Messiah, could be brought into the world. Rehoboam created a lot of problems, not only for himself, but also for the nation. And so I want to close tonight by encouraging us to understand something about the wisdom of mature people, mature members in the body of Christ. And I want to encourage us to make sure that for whatever, I want to make sure that whatever we do, that we're always looking to this standard, which is God's Word. Rehoboam didn't do that, and he paid a heavy price. Tonight, if you're here and you're not a member of the body of Christ, would you consider becoming a part of the body? What would you need to do? Well, you need to believe Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and then be immersed in water. Well, why? So that you might contact the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is what washes away sins. Once you're in Christ, the Bible tells us that you're also in the church of Christ, that is the body of Christ. It's in that sphere that we enjoy, redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, and the Bible tells us that the saved are in that body. If you're here tonight, maybe you're not faithful, you need the prayers of the church, could I encourage you to come? Let us pray with you and for you, and God will abundantly pardon as we stand and sing.